0: Welcome to The Smart Connector, the podcast that helps entrepreneurs be the leader their ideal people love. Build your influence, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons and become a smart connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Rachel Haywood. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Jane. Lovely to have you here. So Rachel is founder and MD of Ask the Chameleon Limited, which is a business that matches potential funding sources from government charitable trusts, big lottery and European funds with small, medium and large businesses. She also advises on and writes tender applications, saving businesses time and money and allowing them to concentrate on what they do best while taking the pain away from their submissions. Rachel's also a startup coach for the University of Derby's Business School and lectures for them on HR and enterprise modules. She writes national and local business award submissions and she's also a trustee for a cancer trust here in Derby. And prior to this, she worked in the charitable sector as an HR specialist. So what an amazing, amazing set of experiences and talents you have to offer Rachel.
1: Yes, I know. I think you, you forget what your career has been until you're talking to somebody about the, the breadth of, of the and the range of the things that you've done.
0: Yes, yes, which is fantastic. So let's start by looking at Arsla Chameleon Limited, Rachel. Tell us, what inspired you to, to form this business?
1: My company happened by accident, a very happy accident, I will say. I had spent uh, the majority of my career working in the charitable sector. I, I adored it. I loved it. I was a HR specialist, but I also led a community interest company. We were delivering employment programs to local disadvantaged groups. And the change in government and the change in the funding meant that I took early severance. Yes. Which was a shock because I thought I would always work in that sector. I had started to do a bit of associate lecturing at the University of Derby and. I thought I was going to take six months out and decide who I was going to be and what I was going to do with the next part of my career. And a local company asked me to write a funding application for them. And I did, and we didn't win that one, but they asked me to write another one for them and it won. And I, I was struck by this sort of light bulb moment of, oh, perhaps I can do this for somebody else. And that's how it started. And I worked uh, for a couple of years as a sole trader under my own name. And then I decided, no, I wanted it to have an identity of its own. Yes. So that I could do other things if I wanted. And I was still lecturing at the university at that time, building yeah. the business. So that's what I did. I, I created the limited company, it will be five years ago now. Yes. And it's, it's grown very organically since then.
0: Amazing. So, Rachel, what you do is an incredible service, really, because so many owners of small businesses in particular, they get incredibly intimidated by the thought of filling in a, an application form for government funding because they don't know where to start. I'm sure that there is a big niche for your services. Do you find that you're, you're very much in demand in the small business sector?
1: Sometimes I think anybody that provides a service to another business, it ebbs and flows. I think you have to have resilience in in drove because we can all write and yes. we can fill in these application forms. I am self-taught myself. Yes. So yes, some people do need me, and it they can be like buses, it's like being on a roller coaster. Sometimes yes. you can think you've got nothing coming in, and then all of a sudden everybody wants your service, and as a a single woman bans, that, that's a challenge. Yes. Um, but then equally, I am up against individuals that are happy to do it themselves or companies that do have large bidding teams. Yes. And with a lot of things, people, people want you but don't always have the time or the, the, the money to be able to pay for you. And, and I think that's a challenge that any business owner faces.
0: Of course it is, of course it is. So is it partly a question of making them aware of the the potential funding opportunities that are available to them whilst not telling them everything?
1: <laughs> yes, I think so. And because my business has grown steadily over time, yes, it's sort of establishing yourself as the person to go to if they've got any queries. So I'm sure there's a lot more that i that I could be doing. I have very high standards. Yes. Uh, and, I, and I have. I always try to help my business contacts and my clients. So if they can't use me or I'm not available, I give them an option of, of what they can do to help. With a lot of local government procurement, if you're going for tenders, yes, a lot of companies think that it's not for them or it always goes to the same people. Well, that's probably because the same companies always apply. So you can't win if you don't play. Yes. And I, I try to ensure with my clients that whatever we create in the written form, they yes. can go on to use elsewhere in their business, so that yes. there's more bang for their book, really.
0: Yes. So, so could you give, give me a concrete example of that, Rachel, a, a case study, perhaps?
1: I'm working with a manufacturing company on, this is more on the, the business awards side, and we'll create... know some really great answers to the questions about who their business is how long they've been going why they should win employer of the year or customer service of the year and that content then also is released on their website it goes in pr copy yeah Um, they also use it you know to circulate internally for you know motivating and encouraging their staff it's never it's never lost yes and I and it goes out on their social media as well. So yes. I work very closely with them to make sure that it's just not a one-time use. The same can be said with the tenders, really. Yes. If I'm preparing a company to get tender ready, um, yeah. a lot of the time they've got bits and pieces of information here, there, and everywhere, and I bring it all together for them. And you know, once they've used me, sometimes they can go on to write ones of their own using yes. my my documentation and my content as a starter yes because for a lot of companies it's that blank sheet of paper I'm working on to at the moment yes and they can tell me about their businesses yes terribly, but it's it's only when I start asking them questions that they really come alive really because yes. we hide we hide our successes sometimes
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, a lot of this, there is an overlap with with marketing, isn't there? Because I would imagine that a lot of it, even in the tender applications, is about positioning the business competitively and highlighting the the, uh, benefits of their work.
1: Absolutely. I, I work closely with their marketing teams or their outsourced marketing experts. Yes. To make sure, especially for the awards, that it's integrated into their strategy yeah and and with the tenders i also aim to make sure that if the procurer googles there and looks at their website that they'll see similar information that the terminology used is is consistent that their social media supports that because by demonstrating the consistency you're underpinning The quality approach that the company has, and the fact that they are a safe pair of hands, yes, of money, which is basically what procurement is trying to establish.
2: Yes, absolutely,
1: money, but also that you know that they are going to do what they say they're going to do.
0: Yes, absolutely. I used to work in media myself, and I know that a big part of our strategy to accelerate the growth of our business was PR and in particular awards so we used to take the awards very very seriously the creative awards i think it's incredible it's quite profound actually the impact of, of having an array of war awards to your name as a company how have you found the impact of that amongst your clients
1: oh certainly i remember before i started writing awards i met somebody that was a, a runner-up in some local awards to my area in derby and, and she said to me Being the runner-up was nearly as good as being the winner because the impact it had had on her business, you know, her turnover had increased massively, and also her position. This was a a female owner, also position amongst the business community. So the PR, um, more people knew about her. You know, my area is quite quite small. Yes. Um, So I think it does. I also think, especially for some of the smaller guys and ladies that apply for awards you know to be to be judged and found to be excellent is a huge boost to your self esteem of course it is you know running a business can be lonely yes um, and any any business owner that tells you that it's amazing quite frankly is fibbing and you know to have that gives you that boost and and it can become quite addictive and i can i can say that personally actually <laughs> because, because it's you know you do work desperately hard and you sacrifice things and and they are things that you're willing to sacrifice don't get me wrong Yes, but you know, to have the opportunity to take your family or a couple of your clients to uh, an awards gala is 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 quite frankly, you know, the best experience, and and it can keep on giving. Again, I encourage my clients to really squeeze everything out of the social media, the PR aspect. Yes, so that you know, being shortlisted, being a finalist, being a winner, all those sorts of levels are are maximised because they truly are a marketing campaign that we can't always afford.
0: Well, absolutely, absolutely, and of course, that is the beauty of, of PR. That uh, PR is essentially managing perception uh, in your marketplace, and you know a lot of that can be done. Well, you can leverage tools like awards incredibly well, can't you? You know, once once you've actually got them, first of all, they've got the morale boosting thing that nobody can take away from you secondly you know you can they're good for the organization they make people feel good don't they and then thirdly of course you can you can leverage them and actually increase your brand profile in the marketplace so I'm all for that definitely
1: yes certainly I mean you know one of my clients they're using it to raise uh, awareness of their employment opportunities another charity that I supported won the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, you know, that meant so much to them I'm yeah. their founder um, because that's like, you know, a very special award for the voluntary sector and it also rewards their volunteers. So it, it works as a motivator for the people inside your organisation.
2: Definitely.
1: It yeah, it doesn't always have to be about the MD or the CEO or... No. It's a great tool that not, not everybody makes the most of and I think it's because... Other businesses assume that somebody is nominating these companies, when in actual yes. fact they're nominating themselves. Yes.
2: Yes.
0: Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The other, the other thing is that there is also a commercial aspect to it. Because I remember when I ran my design agency, the fact that we were a multiple award-winning design agency with some of the highest uh, you know creative accolades that you could get actually meant that that uh, designers were willing to work for us for cheaper because you know they were just happy to be aligned with a really really happening design company so of course the work was good but then to have that external endorsement actually meant that we we did save on the one of the biggest costs that all organizations have which is the
2: the wages bill.
1: Absolutely. And you can put them into tenders as well. Yeah. If you've been judged by expert, I think it just it shows a level of development and progression within your company that others will infer that, and, and rightly so, that you're, you're a good quality provider. And I, and I think that's important.
0: Definitely, definitely. So, so let's let's get on to the, the the funding sources, Rachel. Do you find that it's a bit of a minefield? Because I certainly feel that with some of the entrepreneurs that I've spoken to, they really, really don't know where to start or how to access that funding. So, did you have to have an encyclopedic knowledge? Of all of the funding sources, or how, how do you start finding out about them? Gosh, I
1: wish I did, uh, <laughs> because yeah. it changes all the time, probably. Well, yeah. Oh, it does. You know, and and I'm learning all the time. Yes, which is which is good. I I know what I know, and I have various different tools that I use. Um, I mean, obviously, my knowledge of my local area is is probably the highest level of knowledge, and. My area is not really things like angel investors and those sorts of things. So my, my funding sources tend to come from our local enterprise partnership and our great uh, yeah. hubs. So I know how they work. So if I'm working with a client out of my area, that's where I start. Yes. But equally, what you tend to find with the funding sources that are on their website, once you start drilling down, you find that your client's not as eligible for those as you would think. To be perfectly honest, the majority of my clients will have already identified a funding source. Yeah, and they just don't have the time or the expertise or the understanding. Yes, and that's when they call on me, or I get referred from from somebody else. Yes, um, and similarly we, with my charitable clients, because searching can take a lot of time. Mm. Uh, it's, I, I liken it to being um, Alice going down the rabbit hole. <laughs> then sometimes they they have identified it. But I do work with people to see what we can find. And it's a lengthy old process, really.
0: So just to go back to job creation, I mean, you know, I'm down in the southeast and I know that there are obviously there are a lot of jobs down in the southeast and in London compared to some other parts of the country. So would you say that funding for job creation tends to be more available for the perhaps the more deprived areas where unemployment is an issue or or is it is it uk wide
1: my personal opinion is it's uk wide because okay the here in here in derbyshire and um so our our local enterprise area is derbyshire derby derbyshire nottingham and nottinghamshire yeah there are pots of money for the more um deprived areas because we do have quite significant um, wards in that area that sort of category yeah but they tend to be around skills the business to business money that's available tends to be about job creation for a higher level Yep. Yeah. so there's there's quite a big gap between the more disadvantaged wards and and the the other areas that you can build on I tend to find those regardless of the geographical area at the yeah. moment I mean whether this will change I don't know and also because of my university context, I do put a lot of my clients in touch with the university for graduate placements and internships and those sorts of things. Yes. Which can be a more straightforward way of job creation, because the issue with taking anybody's money will be that it can change things for you as a company. And yeah. Everybody wants that.
0: And I certainly remember from, from my days, a, b- a big issue for us was, do we seek... Well, for us, it, w- it would have been venture capital to grow, or do we just build the business organically and sell? And in the end, the founder said, uh, I want to build the business organically and sell. And I think that the reason for that is once you introduce external sources of funding, then in a way, you're perhaps you lose a bit of control, you're answerable to, to somebody else, and not, not all founders like that, do they? No,
1: no, and, you know, you... You, you don't get something for for nothing. The money that's available is very specific. Yeah. If you can't create the, the growth in the way they want, then don't put yourself forward. Don't shoehorn yourself into something that actually is going to make life very difficult. My charity colleagues know this very well. You know, yes. The criteria, don't, don't go. And during the recession, which is when I obviously took my voluntary severance, it... Yeah we were starting to see charities do that. It was mission drift because we were scrabbling for the money from everywhere and anywhere. So sometimes, you know, and I will say to my clients, I don't think this is for you. Yes. We have a very interesting conversation and sometimes they agree with me and sometimes they don't, which is always really interesting. But (laughs) I'm, I'm never afraid to say, I think this will change things for you or this isn't the pot of money for you. Let's look at something else. It's not for everybody
0: no as you said they do have a fairly strict criteria and it's not a question of actually getting the money and just grabbing it and running away you do have to provide reports and you do have to monitor how the money is spent and that's one another thing that you do isn't it rachel
1: yes and it's the element of control i think for the business you know business people are so used to just i see something i want it i go for it yeah and when you when you bring in somebody else's money to the equation, then you need to report back to them. You need to let them know in advance of decisions being made. You need to produce evidence and proper receipts and things like that. And sometimes they're just not used to that.
0: No, that's right.
1: And and sometimes it's not the right choice
0: if a business doesn't perform in terms of of using the money correctly or following the process providing the receipts and, and and the information the feedback what's the consequence of that can the organization ask for their
2: funding back or what happens
1: yes they can with some of the smaller parts you just won't get the money refunded with some of the smaller parts of money you will buy the equipment let's say yeah upfront and then you will submit your receipts and then they will give you the contribution back. So that's why I, I call it cash back. Okay. So this can preclude a lot of small businesses because they don't have the cash available for those sorts of purchases. Yeah. And then with some of the larger ones, so if they've gone into employment creation, a lot of those work in the way of, of defrayal. So you, you run your project or your additional arm of the company, whatever, and then you have to show that money has come in and gone out of your bank account before you can then submit a claim to have that repaid and again yeah. this can have significant impacts on your cash flow yeah but if that doesn't happen or you complete the monitoring information incorrectly or you haven't bought or employed who you said you would this can this can cause you know catastrophic effects you know ripple effect in your business and they will not pay out or if it's a tender, they could take the tender off you. Now, you will have to declare that in subsequent tender applications that you make because they yeah. ask you, have you ever had a tender closed, withdrawn from you because of poor performance? So you have to be really sure that you can deliver what's being asked for because yes. they taken very seriously, if not, and it can have a long lasting impact on your company's future.
0: Of course it can. And, and you know, again, it can create negative PR, which means that trust is lost. And of course, it's very, very important to uh, maintain trust with your clients and in terms of the perception of you in the marketplace, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And if you're a charity, you know, sometimes your trustees have had to take on extra guarantees or insurances and, and that makes trustees very nervous.
2: Yes, I completely so
1: That also can stop them
0: going forward. I completely understand. Right. Well, well that, that's great feedback, Rachel. So let's move on and talk about your, your work with the University of Derby Business School. So you're a startup coach for them, which must be really exciting work.
1: I'm what's called an associate lecturer for the business school. So I teach six hours a week at the moment, first year business school students. And then I'm also, the university calls it a mentor under their Be The Boss programme, which is university-wide actually. So I do see some students from the business school, but I also see them from a, a range of different schools and colleges throughout the university. Yeah, It's a fantastic scheme, it really is.
0: Yeah, and do you find that the appetite for entrepreneurship is increasing, or are your students more looking to enter corporate careers?
1: I think there's a full range. In some of the schools, they talk about being a freelancer, so they don't always use the word entrepreneur. So they talk yeah. about working for themselves, being a freelancer. Yeah. So, you know, naturally in the photography and creatives, that's quite prominent. Some of them already do some work like that. Yeah. The majority of the students that I meet all, you know, do have a job as well as studying. And I think for some of the more traditional schools, like the, the business school, it's, it's growing. But I do think that you could have that argument for the future careers of all the students. We don't know what they will be yet. There's such a significant change going on within the world of work. Definitely. Whereas when I was at university, you went into a job and you stayed there for, well, I stayed five to ten years. And, and yes. a different employment I had. You know, most of the students now change every couple of years. It's different.
2: Yes, they do.
1: Well, it's just a much
0: faster paced society really today, isn't it, with, you know, communicate, digital communications and so on. And I guess that's going to be reflected in the way that, that, that your students approach their, their future careers.
1: Yes. And, you know, there is still the law of the big corporates, but I think for a lot of them now, they're perhaps seeing that there's a lot of diversity to be gained of working with small companies. There's a lot to be said for having lots of different roles, like a portfolio career, like mine. Um, so it's just it's raising their awareness, really, of what's possible. Yes, uh, so the universities work very hard at that. Students can come in sometimes very focused on just the qualification because that's how they've come from school or college. Yes, it's our responsibility to sort of broaden their awareness to a full range of different things. As I say, I predominantly uh, lecture first years in this semester. Yeah, it's a lot of information for them to take on board. They they do surprisingly well to yes to cope with that transition. Really, I talk to a lot of people who've perhaps been in very successful
0: corporate careers for maybe ten to fifteen years and are now looking to transition out, and they're starting a side hustle that they want to turn into a, a full time business. Mm. And then I also meet other people who are technically what you call self employed, so they're not entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs really indicate that somebody wants to scale a business but perhaps they're going from being um, self-employed to actually looking at scaling up. All of those options are available really throughout working life aren't they?
1: Absolutely you know so I talk to students in the health and social care school about being entrepreneurial and writing bids and tenders because they may go into that area but as they climb up the corporate ladder they will be expected to you know Identify opportunities, be innovative, create those opportunities if they're not already there, so it's about equipping them for a full range and and that flexibility of oh, if I don 't like this, I can go and do something else, that they're in charge of their own destiny in that way. Yes, we all have things that we don't enjoy, and, and we are our own white knights in that regard
2: absolutely absolutely so
1: I, I thoroughly enjoy it. I love meeting all the different students talking with them about their business ideas. I think the university works exceptionally hard at providing opportunities for them to meet other entrepreneurs. So we teach our university students how to network in the business school. And I I think that's an amazing uh, opportunity for them. I think they sometimes think that private business people know how to network automatically um, and we don't. So this, they give them every opportunity to to meet a full range of different entrepreneurs and self-employed and intrapreneurs within organisations. Yes, so that they can just be more aware of, of what's possible. Yes, make good decisions.
0: Exactly. So let's just quickly touch on the uh, concept of an of an intrapreneur. I mean, I understand it, but perhaps some of our audience might not. So would you would you like to just define that briefly, Rachel? Oh, yes this isn't an
1: academic definition but no I am, I, am, <laughs> I understand an entrepreneur to, to be somebody who has that opportunity identification or creation within an organization so they are entrepreneurial they are they want to grow and develop they want the the company and the team but they are employed and I certainly think that that's what I was when I worked in HR and, and when I worked in charities yeah. I was very lucky within the charity that, you know, if I saw an opportunity, my boss would support me to go in and find it and make the most of it and explore that. So they are creators, but within an employed, you know, sort of status.
0: Absolutely. So they're producers and creators. That's, how, that's how you define them. Absolutely. Okay. Oh, lovely. Well, let's move on and talk
1: about your work for the Cancer Trust. So I'd love to hear more about that, Rachel. So I'm a trustee of a small cancer trust here in, in Derby. Derby, Derbyshire called Annabelle's Angels. Yes. We, Annabelle was our friend, and unfortunately she lost her battle with cancer a number of years ago. And we discovered that she had been very supportive of other people who had had the diagnosis. And the charity was set up in her name. Some very early fundraising, things like fire walks, mountain climbs. Predominantly by Annabelle's family and friends. Yes. I joined them a couple of years ago. I knew Annabelle and I used to work with her husband. We are small but beautiful. We are run by 11 amazing volunteer trustees who tirelessly give of their time. And what we do, we uh, respond to applications from local people who have had a cancer diagnosis and are having treatment in our local hospital. And they can apply to us for up to £300 for anything that is going to make a difference to their lives at that point in time. So it can be anything from support with tax to get to and from treatment because they can no longer drive. Yeah, It can be a voucher for some clothes because due to the treatment, the individual has gained or lost a significant amount of weight. And that these sorts of things that you don't think are important, but when your family income goes down so much, you will choose to just wear the clothes that don't fit you so that you're buying food and the essentials in life. But actually, calling fitting clothes can be very damaging to your how you feel about yourself. But it can seem yes. just fine a fine thing to say, oh, I'd like some new clothes. It's not means tested. So the Macmillan funds are means tested, but we work exceptionally closely with the Macmillan team at Derby Hospital. Yes. And people apply to us. We, we don't give cash, so we'll give a voucher for a, a shop or you know, a supermarket for the petrol sort of thing. Or we'll liaise with a contractor if it's about an aids and adaptations to the home. And we raise money. We don't write any funding applications at all. The money comes through local donations and, you know, bagpacking and sporting things and collections at people's memorials, those sorts of things. It's a very, very close local charity that I'm very, very proud of.
0: Wow, I mean, that, that is amazing, Rachel. I, I don't know if you know this, but I am also a breast cancer survivor. So I, I had breast cancer very, very badly about eight years ago. And for me, the kindness of strangers at the time made such a huge difference. You know, there were so many people that were so generous to me in terms of giving their time and their love and their support. And a lot of the time when you have cancer, some people don't understand, they can judge you, they can, if obviously your appearance changes, you don't look very attractive when you're going through cancer treatment. Out in the real world, people can react badly and it it can make you feel very, very hurt and upset. So that level of kindness, even if it's just a a gesture or of course, you know, some extra money makes all the difference to just invest back into you so I think that's a really incredible thing that you're doing
1: yeah I mean uh, we've supported over I think it's over 250 families now we've been going since 2013-14 sometimes it's you you take vouchers to people's homes and it's it's very difficult they are going through such an experience such a challenge one of my best friends had cancer the same time as Annabelle Um, yes same two boys breast cancer and and thank goodness she survived, but I saw her go through that. It's truly terrifying. So anything that we can do just to make things a little bit more comfortable. And when we're out uh, fundraising, you know, people who have had cancer or are going through it or a family member, they don't wear a badge to tell us that. So we we no. do have some exceptional, inspiring, and sometimes very challenging conversations with people that because people will come up and talk to us and and ask about us. And I've seen over the past 12 12 to 24 months, you know, more awareness about us. They've heard of us now, which is great. But equally, that brings on a huge challenge if we need to raise more money all the time because people need us. And we all the trustees feel that need very keenly. And they're determined to answer the call for help. My chairman does a lot of running. I made it very clear when I joined. I (laughs) don't... I don't do the running. No. So we do a lot of running events and and Derby itself has a very keen sporting element. So we're always out and about at those. We're at the Derby 10 soon running the water station.
0: Fantastic. That's such great work, Rachel. Wonderful to hear about that. So just a final question to, to wrap it up, which is something that I ask quite a lot of the entrepreneurs and MDs that I interview, which is really about how you start and end your day and if there are any tips or hacks or favourite habits that that you'd like to share with our listeners.
1: I always start my day with a cup of tea because that's essential and I, I take my dog out for a walk. I can sit at my desk all day if I'm not careful and ever since I've had my dog Cooper he reminds me that we need to go out. Yes. Also because I am my business I can be glued to my phone and again he reminds me that that's not necessary so I take regular breaks with him and I leave the phone at home and I go for a walk. Today is a stunning day here. In, I'm in Burton-on-Trent. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say it's mindfulness as such, but I raise my awareness from outside of my business and to how beautiful the trees look. It sounds a bit soft, but I do. And, and how much joy my dog has in just chasing the ball. Yes. Because I love what I do. I really do. But it's not all of my life. And I think we need to remember sometimes that there needs to be time for play and rest and non-business. And I'm still a work in progress. I think we all are. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what I'd say to somebody is if mis- mistakes are made and they will be made, don't beat yourself up about it. Learn, do something differently next time. I say that to my students all the time and I try very hard to apply that to myself. And, and know your limitations because you can't do everything. I I was so lucky last year to win one of the Small Business 100. I got help in to help me with various different aspects of my business. And that has just given me so much more headspace so that I can go and walk my dog. I can spend time with my family and friends because that's what's important. So I think you have to know why you're doing it. Um, That's absolutely right.
0: Really important.
1: Yeah. So know your why. And if it's making a difference, making a difference in, in what way and to whom. Definitely. What about the end of the day, Rachel? Is there any, any particular way that you like to, to end the day or does it just vary? It does vary because sometimes I'm, I'm lecturing till late, other times I'm out, I'm out networking. Most of the time it ends again with, with walking my dog and I try to do things away from, from the office because with working from home, you know, sometimes you can think, oh, I'll just go back upstairs and do a couple of hours. The way I de-stress, is that I am a member of a, a local community choir, so I, I go there once a week, work permitting. Yeah. But I I suppose on a regular working day, I write my list for the next day as the last action that I do. I learnt that from somebody and I can't remember where it was. Yes. So that your next day you hit the ground running.
0: Yes, yes. I, I've heard many, many entrepreneurs say that, actually, a big, big fan of lists, and it, it's a very, very common theme that comes back again and again, and I also like like to do that because, as you said, it's a way of drawing a line under the day and getting ready to hit the ground running the next day. It's a great habit, isn't
1: it? Yeah, oh, I love a list, and especially when my brain gets very full, which I think yeah. The physical thing of writing things down, I have always found, ever since I was a student, the best way to get it out of my brain and organise myself. If I feel over, you know, overwhelmed, I just write everything down. Yes. And then, and then I, you know, I put it into chunks. So today I've got three actions of my main list to do, and just that physical thing of, of ticking them off and saying right, they're done. Next thing and. You do save time because if you write your list listing in the morning, half an hour can be gone because you're trying to remember everything that you've done. Whereas at the end of the day, your brain is still engaged. Yes. Um, and then it can be very cathartic of, right, I've written my list. I don't have to think about it for the rest of the evening. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I am a work in progress. So sometimes I do better than that and, and sometimes not so much
2: yeah yeah
0: well i think we've come to the end of the interview but rachel it's been such a pleasure to speak to you thank you so much for sharing your time with us today we'll look forward to tracking your progress that's great thank you very much thanks for listening to the smart connector podcast if you've enjoyed this episode why not head over to janebaylor.com and order a copy of my free report on building your personal brand I'd love to connect with you on social media. And finally, don't forget to like and subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss a show. Thanks for listening in and see you soon.